0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Machines and Masterpieces, a podcast that is interested in the intersection of culture, technology, and economics. I am Christoph Speyers, and I'm an Associate Professor of Finance at HEC Paris. My guest today is Noah Askin, who is an Assistant Professor of Organizational Behavior at INSEAD. Noah does research on social and cultural networks, the production and consumption of culture, and the drivers of creativity and innovation, in particular in the music industry. In this research, he constructs machine-generated measures of the novelty of pop songs, based on the distinctiveness of the sonic characteristics of those songs. So I wanted to hear a bit more about how that works exactly, and what one can then do with those measures. Noah, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Christoph. Looking forward to talking about this.
0: So I know I listen to a lot of pop and rock music myself. And when I read your papers on the music industry, I'm always a bit jealous. In your writing, you can use stories about Bob Dylan and quotes of contemporary R&B artists like Megan Thee Stallion. Can you tell us a bit how and when you started doing this kind of research?
1: So this started with a PhD doctoral program exchange conference uh, between University of Chicago and Kellogg. And um, my primary co-author on most of my research is Michael Muskoff, who just so happens to have a prior PhD in musicology and is now a a business school professor as well. And we started talking at this conference and had a shared interest in music. And I've always loved music and knew that I was going to be dedicating many hours, weeks, months, years of my life to doing research And thought, uh, if that's going to be the case, then I probably should do something I care a lot about and like a lot. And so that's what got me started talking to him and finding some data sources and and just digging into the data and the questions that we could ask with it. There was definitely a, a story early on where I was explaining to someone, and I honestly do not remember who, at the Academy of Management annual meeting, and somebody asked, this person asked what I do. And I said, I, I'm studying music. And and the response was something to the effect of like, aren't you supposed to wait till after you have tenure to do stuff like that? Which obviously I haven't done. Uh, we'll see how that all pans out. But, but yeah, it's been uh, seven or eight years now starting on this
0: work. I mean, I can definitely relate. I did my PhD on the art market. And at the time, also, some people were like, should you really be doing this kind of stuff? as a PhD or before you have tenure. So is, is doing this research as fun as many people may, may think, or, or can it be as much a slog as any other academic research, right? Do you sometimes think to hell with Bob Dylan?
1: <laughs> I never think to hell with Bob Dylan. I'm more, it's more the standard to hell with the reviewers or the people that don't seem to get what we're trying to do, which nine times out of 10 is probably my fault slash our fault in the writing process. Is it fun? Yes, especially presenting this kind of work, which comes with trade-offs, right? Everybody has their own opinions and tastes on music. And so when you present something, they wanna give you their anecdotal story or question about why their taste or their experience doesn't align with our much broader findings, uh, which is okay. People are inherently interested, so that makes it fun. I think just like anybody else who's trying to deal with the publication process, that, that becomes a slog when you start staring at the same quotes over and over again, and trying to get the the story in a place where people are going to accept and really buy what you're, what you're trying to, to sell. So like anything, it has its downsides, but I think in general it's among the more fun things that you can be spend your time uh, studying. I was just looking through right now, actually, the um, Rolling Stone just put out the, the 500 greatest songs of all time, which they do from time to time. This is the first time they've updated for in it, they've updated it in about 17 years, and I get to call that research. So that's, that's kind of cool.
0: So let's talk a bit more about your research. So you you study the creativity or the drivers of creativity in the music industry. And so basically you start from a data set of songs, right? You have a few hundred thousand songs, let's say that were recorded and released in second half of the 20th century. But then how do you measure the creativity or novelty of each song?
1: So the the broader data set is actually much more expansive. It covers about 2 million artists and 20 million songs, really going back to early early 20th century. The data is obviously pretty sparse back then. All the way up until about 2016 is when we finished collecting the data. And we could continue to update it. It's just it's an ongoing process. And so we've sort of stopped the collection, adding to the collection for now. But what's been interesting is over the past decade or so, maybe a little bit more, there's been the uh, rise of a field called music information retrieval that sort of sits at the intersection of musicology and machine learning. And what the algorithms and companies that specialize in music information retrieval are doing is extracting the features of the songs down to the beat level. So... all the information you can think about digitally extracting and then they aggregate it up and they can give you it gives you information about songs along the lines of standard musicological features like tempo and key and whether it's major or minor and then you know depending on the the company or the service that you're using you can get different types of more subjective measures how danceable the song is how positive or negative the emotional tone of the song is things like that So what we've done is we take those features and we basically compare them to each other from one song to the next and we can aggregate those differences you know a simple cosine similarity measure across a handful of of features to figure out how similar or different a song is from one other song or from a collection of songs and use that as a means of determining how novel a given song is in comparison with some other collection of songs
0: so this is maybe a bit abstract right or at least to some of our uh, listeners, I'm not sure that everybody sort of understands what, what you mean with the cosine similarity measure, for example. So, so can you maybe give uh, some examples of, of well known songs that, that you would classify or that the algorithm would classify as, as being very novel, maybe songs that our, our listeners might know, or maybe other songs that are not so novel and, and, and maybe explain why? So uh, some of the songs that have popped up as being more novel Some
1: early Slick Rick songs for hip-hop fans in the audience, Uh, Lottie Dottie, if anybody's into Slick Rick, pops up as being particularly novel. And when you think about that being one of the early popular hip-hop songs, if you compare that song and its features to the songs that had come out in the prior couple of years, it's going to stand out for classic rock fans. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's Deja Vu which uh, if you listen to that song, you're familiar with them. It changes quite a bit throughout the song. And so there's some novelty to that. And then for people that are into sort of weirder 70s rock, uh, some Captain Beefheart music pops up as being particularly novel. And again, this, these are sort of in the more popular traditions that the data set actually spans lots and lots of genres, but my suspicion is sort of obscure Polish funk music is not going to be all that familiar to everybody in the in the audience but then the songs that are more or i should say less novel um, more kind of typical or or mainstream sounding there's some phil collins music which he takes he takes a lot of heat from critics and fans alike for his kind of pop middle of the road sensibilities uh, and for better or worse our, our our algorithm and calculations of novelty show that to be kind of true a Steve Miller song, "Fly Like an Eagle," is one of the more another well-known song that pops up as being pretty pretty typical, uh, not particularly novel, and so it passes the basic sniff test in terms of if you're familiar with with music and the history of music and songs that that kind of stand out. It seems to turn those up as being relatively novel. Every time I present this, someone's like, "But what about Bohemian Rhapsody?" And it does show up as novel, not crazy, and some of it has to do with when you take a piece of art like like a song and you and you reduce it down to eleven summary features, you do lose certainly some of the dimensionality and depth and richness to it. And so it doesn't always pick up every single nuance. However, at scale, we're able to to make some general statements about novelty that that so far have held up to being pretty pretty on point.
0: If I were in the audience, I'd probably be like, "But what about Radioheads paranoid Android?" Which is the Bohemian Rhapsody yes. of the 90s.
1: One of my favorites. So I understood. I actually have not specifically looked up Radiohead, which I should, just for my own knowledge and to throw that back out there when somebody asks about Bohemian Rhapsody.
0: So you use this matter of song novelty in a, in a couple of papers. And I was particularly intrigued by a recent research of yours, which you then link creativity to the gender of artists. You also look at the gender composition of artist networks, right, which I think is interesting. Because it really acknowledges that very little creative production is done in isolation. Artists typically interact and collaborate formally and informally with many others. So, could you maybe summarize what your hypotheses on the role of artist gender or the gender composition of artists' network were going into this research, and what you then found in the data?
1: Building on research in gender, especially in and and in diversity more generally, which looks at oftentimes how underrepresented minorities have to perform or how they deal with situations in which they are so underrepresented. We figured that, that women being a sort of vastly underrepresented minority in the music industry, they're outnumbered three to four to one overall, but in some genres far more than that, that they were g- likely to, to put out music that was going to be more novel. And again, we're looking just at solo artists here. Things get much more complicated when you start thinking about bands. And so we focused just on solo artists. So we figured that women were more likely to put out more novel music, both because they have access to different perspectives and backgrounds and and things like like that that are going to enable them to approach things from a different perspective. But also there's a little bit of an assumption that they kind of have to put out stuff that stands out a little bit more in order to get into the industry and stay there. And so that was our first general hypothesis. And that and that plays out in our data. And and we do find that to be true.
0: So can I ask you something on, on on the sort of novelty of songs created by women. Is this almost not by construction and given how your algorithm works, right? So you're, you're trying to look at how distinctive a song is, then if there's very few women in the database, wouldn't then songs created by women almost automatically be uh, classified as being more novel or, or am I missing something there?
1: No, good question. So what's unique about this or not, or what's worth <laughs> bringing up about the data, we're not using lyrical features. So there's nothing in the data that's based on the signal pulled from the the vocals themselves. So this is all about just the underlying music. And we did a couple of basic tests, just plotting out songs as a function of of their features in two dimensional space. So reducing our 11 dimensions into two two dimensional space And there's no clustering that's specific to gender differences. And so there's nothing really that suggests to us that there's going to be something specific about the songs that women are producing that's going to lead them to to be identified by the algorithm. And in fact, our novelty measure, just a pure descriptive distribution, they're almost identical, men's and women's distribution. It's only when you start controlling for different factors, like what genre they're in, and things like that that you start to see the differences pop up. So we're pretty confident that it's not an artifact of the algorithm that's just identifying women as being unique. And so the the crux of the paper that you're asking about is really thinking about the fact that creativity is a group process. It's, you know, it's done in context with other people whether or not you're interacting with them directly or whether you're associated with them via gender and so sorry, via genre, not gender. Uh, And so we wanted to look at, okay, what is the proportion of women in an artist's collaborator network mean for their ability to to produce more novel songs? Or what is the, the proportion of women in an artist's genre mean for their ability to produce particularly novel songs? And the way that we hypothesize it is that there's value and diversity. And this is a very common finding in creativity research and networks research. And so our expectation was that women who collaborate with more men, higher percentage of men are going to be more likely to put out more novel songs and men who collaborate with a higher percentage of women are going to be the ones to put out more novel songs. That generally bears out And the effect is stronger for men, again, because there are so many fewer women to collaborate with. It's kind of an extra boost of of novelty, of distinctiveness and diversity in, in their performance.
0: So can I play the role of the nasty referee here? You're, sure sorry. we've
1: had we've had many of them so why not
0: jump on the <laughs> I was no one of them but uh, not yet you find you find a male artist so if i understand you correctly you find a male artist who collaborates with a higher proportion of women will create more novel work on average right so and you say it as a value of diversity and of course i i definitely believe believe this 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 mechanism but but i was also wondering is this sometimes maybe a, a problem of endogeneity right in the sense that it will be the more creative male artists that are the ones that reach out to women for collaborations or women reach out to more creative men, right? If you think about Bonnie Iver and Taylor Swift, who recently worked together quite a bit, it's arguably not because it's collaboration with Taylor Swift that Bonnie Iver produces creative work, right? There's probably something as him being open-minded that led him to work with Taylor Swift. So so can, can, you, can, you, can you sort of pin down causality there that it's really the inclusion of... Women in the network or in the, in the team of, of producers that leads to the work being more creative.
1: So we we're not making a causal argument, nor is it a causal um, statistical strategy. Uh, and so the the point is, what we try to do is to take care of some of those explanations, right? And what we do is we control for an artist's prior creativity level, right? How much novelty has is has been put out in in their prior work, and unsurprisingly, that's That's going to be positively influential on future work, but even net of controlling for that, there's still going to be a positive effect of collaborating with more women uh, for male performers. And so, no, we can't say the simple act of reaching out to someone is guaranteed to increase your novelty. However, in light of the way that we approach the analyses, we think it's strongly suggestive of that. But we certainly don't go so far as to make uh, to make uh, causal claims and kind of along similar lines in the same way that that we're making observations about what happens when interacting with or being associated with members of the opposite gender or in this case, the underrepresented gender. and, And this is that tends to be women is that there's going to be status threat. And female genres in general, especially in many creative industries, tend to be viewed as kind of the less serious, the less sophisticated. And what what we see is that all artists actually put out less novel work when they are in genres that have higher percentages of women. And I'm careful not to say majority women because so few genres are majority women uh, because there are so few of them in the industry. but, there's something going on that the association with more female gender genres tends to lead towards artists putting out less novel work. And again, it's hard for us to know is that, you know, what's the chicken, what's the egg there? Is it. Is it that less creative artists get shuttled into those genres? Is it that those genres are more restrictive on, on the boundaries of what you can experiment with that we're not quite as able to say as much about? But we see these effects particularly strongly for men. Men in more female-weighted genres tend to take a real big hit in terms of their novelty, uh, the novelty of the music they're
0: putting out. I thought it was super interesting, right, that you, you see that, that certain genres are deemed less status-worthy because of the gender composition. And so I wanted to sort of ask you maybe a bit of a, a controversial question or a difficult question. I wonder if there's an analogy with economics and business schools here, how you perceive that. Right. If you think about economics, you have many more women working on development economics, education, gender, children, and so on, and less on asset pricing and macro and business. Maybe the differences between, let's say, finance and marketing. And then sometimes you hear this disparaging comments about the academic fields that women are in. Right, that they are less serious or less rigorous. Right. Do you, Do you think that's a, maybe a similar mechanism that's going on there?
1: Yeah and actually my, one of my co-authors on this paper, Sharon Koppman, has done a bunch of work looking at this type of process in other professional environments and, and you know finds that that job applicant pools that are overwhelmingly female tend to get sort of tainted in the eyes of, of whoever it is that's doing the hiring and end up assuming that anybody applying to that for in that particular job pool is not going to be as qualified right? And so there's these spillover effects. And so, you know, it's these types of biases exist and and these types of of, uh, siphoning processes that put people into certain categories and then label those categories or gender those categories. And, you know, there's these diffuse status characteristics, right? Gender is a diffuse status characteristic that takes on its own value. And so there's a whole line of research on status characteristics that basically suggests that, you know, it could be on age, it could be on gender, it could be on race and ethnicity, but that within a given culture, different levels of a status. So male versus female have different values and and just positive negative. And so you see that these things spill over into genres or categories or industries or job functions. And it basically can, can set stereotypes and biases off that last much longer than our, our, even valid, that may not have been valid in the first place, but that certainly carry all this weight and expectation to the extent that the lower status characteristic gets valued negatively and everything that they do gets valued more negatively. And so that can be women in economics departments. It can be women in certain genres and in the music industry and other art industries. and, And basically anything can take on that gender it can take on a gender expectation and that's going to, to have consequences.
0: So, so coming back to this uh, topic of novelty, so you analyze the drivers of, of novelty or creativity. But of course, then the question is also, does this novelty pay off, right? So and this is also a question I've been thinking about quite a bit in the context of the art market. Is it always a more creative or novel output that is also most successful? Or is it maybe better not to be too avant-garde, right? So is there anything you can say about the extent to which novelty really pays off in the in the music industry.
1: Sure, actually, yeah. The first paper that that Michael and I wrote together on this uh, looked at the Billboard Hot 100 charts from 1958, when they started, until about 2016, and basically we're able to show that the songs that are optimally distinct, and and the way that we get to that is. It's the songs that are not too similar to the other songs that are out at a given point in time, but are also not too novel. So some degree of novelty is is crucial for success. So being super, super novel is going to be too weird for most audiences. It's going to alienate people. It's not going to have large market viability. Being too similar, you get lost in the shuffle. There's so much music that's put out and that on a daily basis. And, and even historically, there was enough music around that, that you really had to do something distinctive to stand out from the crowd. And we are actually able to show that over the course of the, the pop charts. The songs that do the best have this degree of, of novelty to them that allows them to be distinct and yet not so much so that they're alienating.
0: Have you also looked at longer-term success, like awards or longer-term reputation, right? So I think what you're looking at is, in a way, short-term, immediate commercial success, right? But but maybe it's possible that being very innovative is recognized in the longer run. Is this something you've... I mean, coming back to Captain Beefheart, is this something that you've looked at or, or not?
1: So actually, Michael is working on a project on exactly that, looking at artists' careers and how much novelty... And basically this idea of, of optimal distinctiveness, finding that sweet spot of novelty and how that has benefited them or not over time. I actually don't know what his findings have been thus far. I have my suspicions based on, on, you know, even the examples that you're talking about, but also based on the data that we've we've looked at to this point. And I suspect that there's going to be some movement around kind of an optimal point for the people that have have been most successful in the music industry. My suspicion is that it's very hard to hit that optimal novelty point time and time again because some of it's up to your creative inherent creative abilities and some of it's up to what else is going on in the in the music world at a given point in time but my suspicion is that the the people that we think of as kind of these innovators or the most creative and most novel musicians are probably able to kind of hit that spot at various points throughout their career
0: Maybe related to this, based on your research, you think it's, it's possible to fabricate a hit, right? Imagine you start a record company tomorrow, you have a lot of money from all your teaching at yet, and so you can build a team of songwriters, producers, and you can give them advice based on your research. Can we expect a monster hit to come out of that? Why I'm asking is also because you have these, in particular, Swedish songwriters producers like Max Martin, who's behind dozens of hits by Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake in The Weeknd. So, have they intuitively or through experience found sort of the recipe of how to make songs that have this optimal level of of novelty or differentiation?
1: I think there's there's sort of a middle of the road answer to this, uh, and you know, as a music fan, I think this may be slightly biased just because I want it to be true that it's going to be impossible to reverse engineer a hit. On the other hand, you know, if you look at the people that like Max Martin has worked with, they're coming from major labels, they've got big marketing budgets, like they're going to get played a lot, which is a huge competitive advantage in terms of at least being popular and doing well in terms of sales. Now, in terms of like being the most novel songs or the most innovative, I think people are always impressed by the fact that he, that that Max Martin, for example, can churn out so many hits and he really has his finger on some pulse of what actually will latch on in addition or above and beyond those marketing budgets and and record label backing support but i do think that that part of that finger on the pulse that pulse is some understanding of the need for some novelty right there's there's research in musicology and and in and neurobiology that suggests that we need some element of surprise in music, that uh, we look for it. And that's what we are drawn to. And I would argue that that's some of what we're picking up, right? Some degree of novelty in a song in, is introducing some element of surprise, something we're not familiar with. And so, you know, to be able to reverse engineer something, I think you can get close. But again, the problem is you don't know exactly what else is going to be out there in terms of the competitive landscape of music that you're, that a given song is competing with. And so it's hard to be able to say, oh, this is going to be particularly novel, or just novel enough, this is going to be sufficiently surprising, you can get close, but it's going to be hard to know for sure that you can can generate something that really is going to hit that sweet spot.
0: Okay, thanks. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to you, Noah, I think many listeners will have found this of interest as well. So uh, thanks a lot. And uh, please let me know when you want to start a record company.
1: (laughs) Thanks very much for having me,
0: Christoph.